Welcome to the Inquisitive Vet Podcast. This is Simon speaking. Today we are going to be talking about avian respiratory disease with Dr. Neil Forbes. Neil is a fellow and RCPS recognized specialist in avian medicine. He's both a diplomat and the past president of the European College of Zoological Medicine. Neil is the former head veterinarian at Great Western Exotic Vets, but is now focusing his efforts on the conservation of endangered vultures. In this episode, we are going to be talking about how to stabilise the distinct bird and how to investigate and manage respiratory disease in parrots. We're also going to be talking about Neil's new project with the Vulture Alliance, so it's going to be awesome. Now, without further ado, hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Neil Forbes. Welcome, Neil. Good morning, Simon. Thank you. Great. So maybe if we could start, can you just tell us maybe a little bit more about yourself and how you became a exotic vet? <laughs> okay. Um, it, it's kind of like an interesting story, certainly interesting for me. My grandfather was a very famous falconer. He was one of the founder members of the British Falconers Club. And when I went to the Royal Veterinary College, uh, where I did my undergraduate course, um, at that time, Professor John Cooper was a senior reader in comparative pathology at the Royal College of Surgeons, that's human surgeons, um, in Lincoln's Infield in London. So I used to go, uh, because John was a very close personal friend of my grandfather's, and uh, my grandfather introduced us, and I used to go along to John and spend days there doing post-mortems and and, uh, so forth. Um, diagnostic tests and then John and I published uh, what was my first uh, peer-reviewed journal paper whilst I was uh, still an undergraduate um, which was looking into a disease called fatty liver kidney syndrome in Merlins which had affected Merlins which my grandfather had bred. My my grandfather was the first person uh, together with Dr. Leonard Harrell uh, to breed Merlins in captivity anywhere in the world so it was a big thing to him and it was great for me to cut my teeth on a paper involving my grandfather's own birds. So I got introduced to bird medicine through John Cooper. Uh, John is a fantastic guy. I still have tremendous respect for him and and great gratitude because he really launched my career. And lots of people would approach John and say, can you lecture here? Can you write a chapter? And, you know, he would do as much as he could, but then he would say, yeah, but, uh, you know, no, I'm too busy, but I know a man who can. So, um, John gave me lots of opportunities when I was young, and um, things went uh, from from strength to strength from there. Great. That means you started really early. I mean, already published a paper before you even graduated. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not what everyone does, but it, it, as I say, it was, it was just a coming together of opportunities, and it was a, a, a great thing for me to do. Great. And during your career, was there any pivotal decision that you made um, or any big decision that you made that really influenced how your career turned out? I, it's a great question. And, and I think there's a, a couple of issues. But the biggest one was my my first job uh, as a, a graduate was in the Yorkshire Dales um, up in uh, a place called uh, Sebber in Cumbria. Um, and um, in, that that was great. I was there for eighteen months, and when I left there, I was due to go down to a position which I'd been, which I'd accepted in Devon, and the pivotal 
different change was that in between accepting that job and going, um, I was offered a position in a practice who, which I knew, I knew the practice, I knew the people that was based in Stroud in Gloucestershire. And that happened to be eight miles from the largest waterfowl collection in Europe, which was the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust at Slimbridge, and 15 miles from the largest bird of prey collection in Europe, which was the International Central Birds of Prey at Newent. And you know, I'm, I'm a sort of guy who likes to stick to my word and so on, but I, I made the decision that, no, in, in terms of my future career, actually I had to give back word on the Devon job, and I went to Stroud in Gloucestershire, and obviously the whole aim was in time to look after those collections, and within a couple of years I, I was doing that and uh, that really opened a tremendous amount of doors uh, very supportive people at both um, organizations um, helped to develop my career and supported me in research and publications and attending international uh, meetings and so on and so that was really the start and then uh, so that would have been 1988 the end of 1988 and then 1992, so only a short period afterwards, I, I then received my Royal College of Veterinary Surgeon Specialist status in avian medicine. And uh, and then European followed from there and my fellowship and so on. So really, that, that was the key point that um, put me on this road to uh, to being full-time bird vet. Wow. So you, you really got the exposure straight away almost. Um, Absolutely. And, and, you know, th- those two organizations and, you know, I, so many... As I say, fantastic research opportunities, which have then led to papers and uh, presentations at uh, international meetings and so on. So, you know, without that sort of caseload, um, you know, I mean, Bird the Prey Centre, we had 350 odd birds of 67 different species, you know, absolutely massive collection. And uh, as I say, lots and lots of uh, research opportunities, which have been fantastic for me. Good. That's a, that's really interesting. So today we're going to be talking about avian respiratory disease, uh, particularly focusing more on the cytosines. Maybe we could start with what essential questions you would normally ask or what your initial approach is. Okay, well, I think that, you know, the first thing to say, and I'm, I, I would anticipate all owners, uh, all listeners are aware of this, that very rarely does the clinical presentation of an avian, a sick avian patient, uh, link directly to a specific diagnosis and and that that holds true with respiratory disease with perhaps one exception of being a, a tracheal blockage um, but uh, so so really I approach all my sick bird patients in very much the same way in other words I ensure I know what the species is before I call them into the consulting room so that I can know what the husbandry would be in the wild preferably have a good idea of what's been would is like to be provided in captivity because very often it's the difference between those two that is actually the fundamental etiology of the uh, the presentation uh, in other words poor husbandry and, and management problems uh, giving rise to a, a clinical situation so anyway find out what it is call the bird in uh, preferably the bird coming in its own cage and not having been cleaned out if that's possible um, and then sit the owner down and, and I sit down and I'm going to spend at least 10 minutes sitting 
talking to the owner whilst I'm observing the bird. Now, obviously, with a dyspneic bird, that may not be the case, because as soon as you see the bird, you're going to make a clinical judgment. Actually, did this bird need to go straight into an oxygen chamber? Um, and, and that very, very often may be the case with a, with a dyspneic bird. Uh, but that apart, um, taking time to take the history, uh, finding out about where the bird is housed. Is it housed with other birds? Have other birds been sick? Have there been any new birds in the collection? What is the accommodation? Is it in a cage in the house? Is it free flighted around the house or is it in an outside aviary? And that's a really relevant question in terms of respiratory disease. Um, and it's all about the risk that that bird is exposed to. So for example, if a bird is in an outside aviary, then there is likely a greater chance of respiratory parasites, Syngamus trachea, Southostoma, Ceratospiculum, etc. Um, whereas if it's inside, that's unlikely. If it's inside, there's probably a higher risk of um, inhalant toxicosis. Uh, we very, very rarely would see uh, polyfluorotetraethylene, PTFE, um, in other words, um, nonstick frying uh, cook cookware and so on, uh, poisoning. They're, they're always usually dead. But there are other forms of poisoning to do with solvents or um, respiratory uh, toxins uh, such as um, cleaning products and aerosols and perfumes and all these sorts of things. Um, so where the bird lives is relevant. Um, have there been any disease in other birds in the collection? Obviously very, very important. And has the bird been treated with anything at all prior to coming in to see you? So taking all that history, and the reason we always sit with them for 10 minutes is that when the bird comes into a strange environment, it will obviously um, hide the signs of illness. It'll look as well as it possibly can. But within a period of six, seven, eight minutes, it'll 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 no longer be able to achieve that it'll drop its guard and it'll start to show you just how poorly it is <clears throat> and one of the key things i always look for um, a normal fit healthy bird will often stand and rest on one leg uh, with the other leg held up um, if you've got a bird that's standing on two legs um, particularly if it has a, a slightly lower body stance, so that the body is a bit set down on the legs, that's an indication that a bird's pretty poorly. And typically the, bird, the, the feathers will be fluffed up as well and the eyes will be going to sleep and so on. And then la the last extreme situation is where the bird is not only standing on two legs, but also holding onto the bars of the cage with its beak. That is a really, really bad bird. That that would be like some of our colleagues after 15 pints of lager on a Saturday mm. night, you know, really feeling really rough. And that's the bird that potentially is going to drop dead in your hand as soon as you pick it up. And that bird definitely needs 15 minutes of oxygen before you're going to do anything to the bird at all. Um, so it's a really important to observe, to get the history, learn as much as you possibly can, look in the cage, see what food is there, what toys are there, what the poops are like, um, and learn as much as possible before you consider touching the bird or interfering with this in any way at all great so I, I do want to touch on how do you stabilize birds but before i uh do that if you could go through what sort of um things that you are looking for when you're examining the bird okay well i, I split my my examination completely into visual and physical um, and, and the, you know, I don't want to underestimate how much you can learn by just watching the birds. And I guess one thing uh, I would just to, to junior colleagues out there, I would say, you know, if you want to learn more about bird medicine, parrot medicine, bird of prey medicine, the best 
um, solution to advancing your knowledge is to keep one of those birds yourself. Now, if you keep a parrot as a pet at home uh, in an aviary or, or, or wherever, however it is, and observe it closely, it's only by recognizing normal behavior that you're going to have a good ability to pick up abnormal behavior. Uh, and that's where sitting in the consulting room, you can learn so much before you even touch the bird. And then taking that a step further forward, I'm a very great believer that whilst we use an anesthetic in a cat or a dog or a horse to immobilize the patient to allow us to do what we need to do, we use an anesthetic or a sedative in a bird for a very different reason. We use it to reduce the stress on the patient of what we're going to do to that patient. So, you know, a lot of people say, oh, but it's a really sick bird. I, I, I don't want to anesthetize it. For me, the sicker the bird, all the more relevant it is that I'm going to give an anesthetic. So, yes, I'll set the bird up. I'll prepare it prior to the anesthetic so it'll have its oxygen. Um, if it's in obviously in pain, um, then yes, it may get some, some analgesia during that or prior to that, that initial stabilization in oxygen. But then I will not hesitate to give a general anesthetic. Um, and, and when I'm teaching people about anesthesia in birds, um, I'll always stress the point that the safety of an anesthetic is a combination of the safety of the agent plus the experience, knowledge, and ability of the anesthetist. So there is no safe anesthetic. There are only safe anesthetists. So if you're in a clinic where you don't have nurses who are regularly doing avian anesthesia, actually um, a parental agent where you measure the dose, you work it out, you weigh the bird, measure the dose, and you as the vet inject it, okay, you're still going to intubate it and maintain it on oxygen, but it means that that, that anesthetist cannot overdose your bird. In contrast, I, I, I've always been lucky. If, if I'm working in a scenario where uh, we're anesthetizing 15, 20 birds a day, then um, my my nurses are going to be fantastic anesthetists, and in that situation, I would always use isoflurane, which is, is historically what I have done, um, and I would be very happy to anesthetize even a very, very sick bird. Um, if I think there's a risk of anything going wrong, of course I warn the owner, of course I have a consent form signed, but I can honestly say by doing, in my opinion, uh, by doing that uh, examination, always putting an IV catheter in, giving fluid therapy, taking clinical pathology uh, samples, um, I, I will do that in the safest possible way, all doing very quick, very efficient, um, so the, the anesthetized patient to say IV catheter, pull bloods, give IV fluids, give any initial medication, symptomatic medication we need to do, always a lateral and DV x-ray. Um, and in terms of blood work, we'll be doing a full uh, blood uh, uh, workup, so a he full hematology, biochemistry. In a sick bird, it will always involve chlamydia serology. Um, okay, I know that's not the, the bee's knees in terms of diagnostics, but it's a very good starting point for us. And then if we see anything abnormal on x-ray, we'll consider endoscopy, whether that's done straight away or whether we stabilize a bit more before, uh, you know, remains to be seen. Very often, we'll, we'll do that perhaps later in the day or the following day. Um, just quickly to just bring it back a little bit, um, what sort of parenteral agents do you use? Because I personally use a lot of isoflurane, um, yep. but I was just wondering what drugs you're alluding to. Okay. 
Okay. It, and, and that sort of takes me back to a nice little story. Um, in, in my career, I've done work in various parts of the world, including the Middle East. And there was one occasion when I, I called out there. Um, I was called out there. And um, the client I was working for, uh, um, Saudi Arabian gentleman, uh, and he'd promised his, his brother, he was a member of the royal family, and he'd promised his brother that uh, Dr. Neil was coming and that he would anesthetize and um, endoscopically remove ceratospiculum worms from the air sacs of 30 Saker falcons for this brother. And I, I tipped up and, um, you know, that, that was fine. That was sort of routine stuff. But um, I tipped up and the isofluorine vaporizer had not been kept in an air-conditioned room. I had a, a full clinic uh, set up in the uh, uh, the Prince's Palace, and um, but the isofluorine vaporizer didn't work. So, you know, I, I, I knew my book work, I'd written manuals and things at that stage. And so uh, my first uh, option was uh, ketamine and metatomidine, uh, using a ketamine dose of uh, the, the book. Um, formulary dose would be ketamine 3 to 5 mg per kg and 150 to 300 micrograms per kilogram of metatomidine. So the approach I've always used is to use the lower end of the dose. So I use three megalograms of ketamine mixed with 150 micrograms of metatomidine. Um, give that preferably intravenously because the uh, onset of anesthesia is more reliable and the duration is more reliable. Um, and that should give you 20, 25 minutes surgical anesthesia. But because you've used the lowest end of the dose, you can actually repeat that dose once in complete safety. So overall, you'll get 35, 40 minutes surgical anesthesia. At the end, you reverse the metatomidine with the same volume of atipamazole, and the bird will be standing up and completely normal 10 minutes later. And I say I was just forced into doing this in, on this occasion. So I had 30 one kilogram, all bang on one kilogram Saker falcons, and, and just to see the whole 30 go through the process. And I can guarantee each bird was standing up and 100% normal 10 minutes after reversing with atipamazole, and it worked incredibly well. Wow. Do the same principles apply with some of your um, parrots? Yeah, no, it's absolutely all the same. And of course, just, just reminding everyone that um, when it comes to, you know, isofluorine, fantastic. But when it comes to diving birds, so whether we're talking about waterfowl, ducks, swans, geese, penguins, all of those birds have the potential to demonstrate the dive response. In other words, you try and mask them down, they just simply hold their breath. Um, and in those situations, although you know, people say, well, I, I manage it. Yeah, sure, maybe you do. Um, some will go to sleep, but it'll be more stressful for them and it'll take longer. And I would honestly suggest for induction of all uh, diving birds, you should always be using a parenteral agent. Um, so, I, again, I would always use metatomidine and ketamine in that situation. Okay, really interesting. Um, so we sort of skipped a few things um, back with the... Okay. <laughs> if you don't mind if I... Um, yeah, no, no, take it, back. Take it back to the clinic, sure. clinical exam. So I assume that you're saying when you were talking about the anesthetics that for sometimes you actually will finish or complete the exam under anesthetic. Is that... Is that what Absolutely. You were so that's, to say, yes. that's the point. And I'm oh, sorry, I'll take you back a little bit further in a moment. Um, so for me, it's a um, take the history and visual examination. And then I would take the bird straight into our triage area in the, in the hospital. And I would, um, okay, put in an oxygen if it needed to be stabilized first. But I would then 
uh, anesthetize it straight away, just mask it down um, and uh, do all the other things I've said in, in terms of IV catheter, take bloods, uh, x-rays and so on. That would all be done. And obviously the physical examination will be done at that same time. And if the bird needed, for example, a tracheoscopy, uh, because it sounded as though it may have a, a, a tracheal blockage or, or compromisation, um, that would all be done at that same time. The important thing is to make a specific diagnosis on day one. And from that point of view, I'm a great believer that exotic animal vets, avian vets, have to be prepared to do their own clinical pathology. Uh, and that means that for me, any sick bird, we're going to do a white blood cell count, a PCV, um, preferably a differential as well. Uh, that doesn't mean to say you're not going to send it out and get a quality controlled hematology done by uh, a professional uh, laboratory technician. Um, but actually knowing at the point of admission, whether a bird has an infectious condition or not, for me is really important. I, I had a so quick... Can I just oh, take sorry. you back before that? So yeah, sure. Just, just a couple of things on the, the visual examination, and, and in this case, all um, audible examination. Um, many, many listeners will be aware that actually once you've heard and seen one or two parrots coming in with a tracheal obstruction, it's, it's a pretty obvious clinical sign you know they're gasping for breath literally and, and you can hear and perceive there's an obstruction there so you you, you can hear all of that um, but the other point I, I started off at the beginning I said if a bird's in a neighbor it's got a greater chance of having a respiratory parasite I think one of the big big uh, take-home messages here is anything diagnostic that you can do without touching the bird do it before you touch the bird so say, for example, a bird comes in with severe respiratory distress and it's an aviary bird, always, always, always do a fecal exam before you do anything else. And I've had cases like this where you would otherwise rush in, stabilize, anesthetize, do tracheoscopy, and yet before you get to that stage, you've done a fecal and found that the bird is absolutely stuffed with syngomous trachea. So rather than putting the bird through the risk of that anesthesia and tracheoscopy, you can actually say, hang on a minute, no, we're not going to do that. Sure, we'll put it on some oxygen. We're going to give it some fenbendazole or whatever. It may need some covering antibiotics because of dead worms in the respiratory system afterwards. Uh, but really, we'll, we'll stick to a conservative, non-invasive approach because you know what? We know what's going on anyway. Okay, great. One question I had was actually about auscultating the bird's chest or thorax. Mm. Um, is that something you do, and do you find can you find significant things doing that? I don't know if that's a stupid question or not. <laughs> no, I think it's a very useful question because for me, I think a lot of bird vets think that it is very important, and personally, I don't. Um, maybe that's my my hearing isn't as good as some people's, um, and and maybe I can't hear as much. But I I honestly think. Um, you, you will learn more with a bit of experience observing the bird in its cage, seeing how it's breathing, looking at the tail, um, the, the tail angle, and also whether the, the, the tail is going up and down its breathing, hearing any audible noise uh, as it's breathing. Uh, and so for me, auscultation is not a big part of any clinical examination on a bird. Okay, sure. And one quick question before we go into how you actually stabilize your birds, and you've already went through a little bit of that, um, but when it comes to testing for chlamydia, I always get confused as to what is actually the best way to yeah. sample and test chlamydia. Uh, 
you know, this is like a two-hour conversation at least. <laughs> okay, sure. Don't um, worry about but, it. But, <laughs> but just, no, we'll, we'll just touch on it because I think it's important because it confuses an awful lot of people. Um, okay, so we could test antigen. Um, it's true to say that most, if not all, of the ELISA antigen tests do tend to suffer from false positives. Um but, um, you know, yes, you could do that. But the difficulty is that an awful lot of birds ha uh, have latent infection. And previous research has shown us that they will shed antigen on about one in 10, one, one to two out of 10 days. So if you're relying on an antigen test, and normally we would take a swab, and we'd t in this order, please, we take a swab from the conjunctiva, the coena, and then the cloaca. Um, and then uh, normally what we do is submit that for PCR testing. Um, PCR is going to take you five to ten days to get a result. Uh, for me, I want to know something before that in terms of the potential infectivity, uh, contagious uh, status of that patient for the sake of other patients in the ward and also for the sake of my staff. So, Although that can be good, it's not the full answer. Um, there are some people who suggest that nowadays they can do um, sensitive and specific PCR on a blood sample um, and, and that that will pick up latently infected birds. Um, I'm still not entirely convinced about that, but I think obviously that's the way that we, we should be going long term. In terms of what I do um, in practice, I want... Uh, a test that will at least give me some indication of what's going on. Uh, and from that point of view, I use um, an IgG uh, serology test. Now, obviously, IgM would be better because IgM, um, the teeter doesn't remain high for as long. With IgG, a bird that's been exposed to chlamydia will tend to have a high teeter for anywhere between five and 600 days. So, if you test a bird and it has a high teeter, what does that tell you? All it tells you is the bird has been exposed to the pathogen, doesn't tell you it's actually ever been infected by it, and it doesn't tell you that the bird still has the infection. But you know what? If you're dealing with a potentially fatal zoonotic infection, and, and I have patient, I have owners of mine who have died of psittacosis, mm -hmm. so it mm -hmm. is something that we have to be serious about, would I rather have a test that creates false positives or a test that creates false negatives? And the answer is I would always far rather err on the side of caution, go with the false positives, and if I over-treat some birds, well, I've not caused any harm. At least I haven't missed one and allowed an owner to get infected or fail to get medical treatment or whatever as a result of it. So that's the way I've always done it, and that means that from the point where a bird comes in, I can have a serology result 30 minutes later. Um, and that way, um, the bird stays in isolation and the staff are all warned and, um, you know, ev everyone is, is fairly happy as to what's going on. And remember, of course, that if you have a bird that is infected with chlamydia, once you start effective treatment, say, say uh, doxycycline injections the, or azithromycin uh, by mouth, that bird will go antigen negative within 48 hours. So in terms of rendering the bird safe for handling in the hospital situation, the sooner you know it might have a problem and start some treatment, the sooner you know that everyone is safe. Okay. Uh, in terms of the treatment, I know that you just said doxycycline injections or 
azithromycin. Um, which way do you normally go? For me, it's all about availability of, of, of different uh, agents. Um, historically, we've tended to use vibrovenous, which is the human intravenous doxycycline injection. Um, and the great thing about that is that whilst it does cause some tissue necrosis, it's relatively minimal. Um, and we've, as I say, we've used it for many, many years. Um, yes, you'll get a few sort of slightly sore and, and, and hot spots in the muscle um, but you won't get any sort of fatal necrosis or anything whereas an awful lot of the large animal doxycycline injections are really far too necrotizing for bird tissue uh, and generally are contraindicated so for me if I can get vibrovenous uh, human intravenous injection that's the way we go um, if not and that would be for a 42 day period so it's a once a week injection for si on six weeks and obviously we would always treat every in contact bird so if you have six birds in the room you diagnose it on one bird you don't bother to test the others you just treat the whole lot um, and then the other things we would do is that remember that chlamydia remains viable in the environment for up to a month so we would actually hire out to the owner a um, suitable poultry house fogger with an effective disinfectant and for me I would use F10 disinfectant for them to fog their house maybe on week three or week four because by then the bird's not shedding any antigen but you can control any antigen that's left viable in their household um, so the bird doesn't get reinfected. Um, so you're cleaning the, the, the bird's environment do the injection for six weeks, treat all birds in contact, and that, that's the way we do it. If we don't have Vivarinus uh, available, then um, azithromycin uh, for a 21-day period um, should be just as effective. The, the one concern I always have, and I've done some tests historically comparing doxycycline twice a day given by the owner compared with injections, and the injections were actually... Uh, much preferable and I think that was all down to lack of compliance by the owner in actually getting the medication into the birds. Fair enough. So I, I apologize for going at a tangent. It's just really interesting. No, that's um, fine. Maybe that's if we can um, go back to how you actually stabilize um, okay. these okay. birds. Okay, so stabilizing birds, fairly straightforward really, um, just putting the birds in an oxygen-rich environment. And our, our hospital uh, cages, um, I'm I'm not too fussed about transfer of infection from birds of prey uh, sitting close to another bird of prey. But in terms of parrots, where the, the two main infections I'm concerned about uh, are, of course, circovirus and chlamydia, both of which are spread um, from feather and fecal dust. So from that point of view, um, when we designed our hospital back in 2004, um, we, we were insistent. We have three wards. We have a predator ward, so that's birds of prey and ferrets. We have a prey species ward, which is chickens, parrots, guinea pigs, rabbits, and then we have a quarantine ward. And basically everything goes into quarantine until proven not infectious. And in all the wards, it, the, each bird is within its, if you like, within its own uh, fume cupboard. So the whole room is under positive pressure, and then you open a, a little hit and miss uh, window at the front of the cage. They have the, the cage has a glass front to it. Air goes into the cage and is extracted at the back. So basically, I say each bird is in its own airspace, and I think that's really, really important in terms of controlling circovirus and and chlamydia. 
Um, so stabilization, we would just put the bird into one of those cages. We have piped oxygen in the ward that goes straight into the front of the cage. Uh, we, we block off the top of the cage so it's no longer having air sucked out of it. So the oxygen concentration can build up in that space. Uh, we have a cover to put over the front of the cage so the bird is in the dark. It's a nice, dark, warm, quiet place with lots of oxygen. Um, I wouldn't normally use nebulization at that point in time. My experience is that most birds will quickly learn that nebulization is good for them. It eases their breathing, even if you're just using saline initially without any medication in it. But my experience is the first time you put it on, the birds can be quite freaked out by it. So if I've got a sick bird that's got respiratory distress, I, at the time of admission, I will not put it on a nebulizer straight away. Do you wait day or two or is it until stable? Um, and, and usually it would be either later that day or first thing the, the next morning. So until it's a little bit more stabilized, but I, I wouldn't normally bother to wait for two days. I would wait at least until I'd made a diagnosis and the bird was feeling a bit more stable, yeah. Okay. And when it comes to the um, the cage, how would it work with, say, a vet who doesn't maybe have all these sort of special equipment? It's it's really challenging. Um, and, and I think, you know, thinking how we all start off, most of us, um, most exotic vets start off as a cat and dog vet in practice. You see a few exotics, you become more interested in them, you accept a few more, and you just start building it up and building it up. And initially, they're having to be hospitalized in cat and dog wards. Um, and then hopefully in time, you have an exotic ward and, and you can set things up as you want. So uh, your, your question is very valid, because I think everyone starts well, the vast majority of people start from the point from a situation of not having fancy avian hospitalization units. Um, how do you cope with it? Well, I think the first thing is to be aware of the risks. Um, and just to explain um, interesting little story, when I was working in, in Swindon, we had one um, parrot breeder who was extremely good. Um, he only bred extremely rare, extremely valuable species. If he wanted to breed a new species, he built a new building and populated it with that species. Uh, probably eight, ten birds in, in the building, and that was all. Uh, he didn't do health checks, which one may well say was uh, an omission. But if any of the birds got sick, he just killed the whole lot and, and started again. Now, the way he managed it long term is only he and one member of staff went into each building. Any bird that left the building never came back into the building. So if he bred some youngsters and sold them on, he would never accept them back again. One exception. If a bird, say, for example, a hen was presented with egg binding and had to come to the vet, that was the only type of bird that would ever go back into one of his buildings. Now, from my point of view, if that bird went back in and took with it chlamydia or PBFD, circovirus, then he would know straight away where that infection had come from. And we have to be realistic about it that patients go, hospitals, veterinary hospitals are dirty places filled with patients who have potentially infectious and contagious conditions. So, you know, they're not good places to go to. And therefore, we have a responsibility to recognize the risks and to maintain good biosecurity. 
And from my point of view, that's all about separating birds, keeping them in quarantine until we know they're not uh, contagious. Uh, for me, all clinical areas in the hospital would be fogged with an effective and safe disinfectant uh, against those agents, at least on a weekly basis. And we would keep a record of every day that we did all of that. So if anyone came back and said, oh, I think my bird picked up X whilst visiting your premises, we could say, well, firstly, we recognize that problem. We manage very good biosecurity. And in relation to when your bird came in, the, that particular room was fogged one day before or two days before or whatever. So I think that's really important we do that. How does someone just starting out do it? Probably the easiest thing is to get a fogger. They're not that expensive uh, in UK terms, probably £350, and an effective disinfectant that will work against chlamydia and PBFD and that is safe for patients and for uh, staff to walk through. And in, in my experience, I would say F10 is probably the best one. Um, and, and so you recognize that you cause a potential problem, um, but then you neutralize it by using an effective disinfectant afterwards. What dilution do you use for the UF10? Um, standard dilution would be 1 in 250. That's to, to disinfect hard surfaces. And if I'm fogging with animals in the area, I would normally use a 1 in 500 dilution. Okay, sure. Thanks for that answer. Um, really helpful because I, I do find that uh, a lot of places, especially when I'm locuming, they don't mm. have any facilities and you're just trying to do what you can. Now, with these birds that you put into oxygen, do you actually, is there any point where you would consider any sedative or any medication? If the bird has been traumatized, so say it's a bird that's been, a cockatoo that's been grabbed by its mate or something and is in pain, yes, I would definitely give um, an opiate um, uh, analgesic first. I don't personally like to use non-steroidals prior to any situation where there could be a hypervolemic um, situation that's going to arise. So if a bird's about to have an anaesthetic, I would delay using a non-steroidal until the bird recovers from the anaesthetic. But I would I would certainly use um, to, uh, torbuterol, um, torbogesic, um, to, as a, an opiate uh, analgesic to start with. That apart, um, no, I wouldn't. Um, Sedatives are okay, and I know a lot of people, particularly in America, use midazolam now. And yes, as a dissociative anesthetic, that's really good. So the birds are less frightened about its environment and so forth. Um, my only concern is that um, if I'm going to give an anesthetic shortly afterwards, I would rather not have some other chemical on board that might be affecting how the bird is looking until I'm really happy with how everything is. And do you start... Um, birds on empirical antibiotics? Principally, no. I mean, obviously, we speak to our client, we tell them what we think is going on. I, I tell, explain to them why we have to do diagnostics. And yes, that is going to cost X amount of pounds. Um, and there are some clients who say, you know what, I really, really can't afford it. Uh, and in that case, well, you know, if they can't afford the diagnostics, then I'm not going to hospitalize it. Um, because they are um, financially challenged. And so it would be a question of giving a parenteral agent, um, giving them some oral medication to carry on with and sending them, sending them straight home. So I wouldn't be uh, admitting that patient and, unless they were prepared to do all the diagnostics and so forth. Okay. Um, what sort of fluid support do you provide and when do you do that? Okay, so um, very good question again. When do we do it? If it was a really, really stressed bird or you know really ill, then 
there, there would be some situations where we would give fluid therapy before we put them in the, the oxygen chamber. Um, I, I tend not to, to be honest, and I know that's a, a, a debatable point. Um, and the reason is that I would prefer to actually give the 15 minutes oxygen, then anesthetize the bird and give intravenous fluids. Um, giving subcutaneous before 15 minutes of oxygen, I'm not sure that the benefit would outweigh the stress and risk caused to the bird by doing by restraining it and giving sub-Q fluids beforehand. So that, that's just a personal thing. I know a lot of people would go go the other way. So for me, I would anesthetize it. I would put an intravenous catheter in. Now, I know this whole thing about intravenous catheters is a big debatable subject as well. I was reading something recently from America where an author was saying you shouldn't give you shouldn't put in intravenous catheters into birds because the risk of them interfering with the catheter and then bleeding out from from a broken catheter or whatever. And I thought to myself, and their point was, you mustn't use an intravenous catheter unless the bird is super directly supervised 24/7. And I went back through my computer records at that point, and I could see that in the previous five years, we'd put three and a half thousand intravenous catheters into birds in our hospital. And in not a single case had any patient come to any ill effect of using an IV catheter. Okay, I accept one to two percent of birds will interfere with their catheter. And if they do interfere with it, take the catheter out and do not put another one in because they'll do the same thing again. Um, Worst case scenario, so I put a, a plastic gel co-catheter into the vein, typically using the superficial ulna, otherwise the basilic, uh, otherwise known as the basilic vein. I put a bung in the end of the catheter. I put a lastoplast under the bung, back over the top, crimp it together, and then put two sutures between the lastoplast and the skin, one either side of, of where the catheter goes in. And then I put a third suture around the body of the catheter, which goes, so it goes through the elastoplast, underneath the secondary feathers, so out onto the dorsal aspect of the secondary feathers, back up through the elastoplast and, and, and sutured off there. So that just stops the whole catheter flapping over. Um, so the worst case scenario is the bird pulls the bung out of the catheter, but the catheter is left in the vein. And I think some people have this worry that then the bird will bleed out and be found dead in the cage a short period afterwards. I can honestly say... I've probably ever had four or five birds who have taken the bung out, and in each case, they lose a dozen drops of blood and the blood clots in the catheter, no harm done. So for me, the choice between IV catheter, which for me is less painful, less invasive, very easy to put in, compared with an intraosseous catheter, which is more invasive, more painful, more risk of osteomyelitis, just as effective as getting fluid into circulation, I grant it. But I would much prefer the IV route, and I do not honestly believe there is a risk in doing that. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. I'm surprised at how low the um, rate at which they interfere. Um, but uh, no, that's really that's something that I've actually also wondered as well, just because of just with you know bandages being destroyed and things like that. What fluid rate do you use um, initially? Okay, all right. So, so basically we work on the premise that any sick or injured bird is 10% dehydrated unless 
it looks like it's it's worse. So if it's got wrinkled skin around its head, then we'll say, okay, maybe that's 15%. If it's very wrinkled, little old man, then maybe 20%. And so, you know, if you take a, a 500 gram African gray parrot, 10% dehydrated means 50 mils. The maintenance is 50 mils per kilogram. And with the deficit, we'll aim to replace half of that in day one, a quarter in day two, and a quarter in day three. So basically, the maintenance is 50 mils per kilogram, but the parrot is only 500 grams. So maintenance is 25 mils per day. The deficit overall is 50, but we're going to replace 25 in day one. So in day one, the bird will get needs 50 mils of fluid. In day two, it's going to need 37 and a half mils, and day three, 37 and a half mil. And that fluid will be combined with what goes in with the food. And again, I'm a big, big believer you must net with any exotic patient you must not wait for the bird to feed itself you need to be supplying a suitable in my mind semi-elemental critical care formula to that bird as soon as the bird is safe to take food on board and it's not going to regurgitate and it's not going to aspirate and all that sort of stuff so in terms of how do we actually approach it again the 500 gram parrot we will anesthetize the bird put an iv catheter in and we will give 10 mils iv fluids by bolus and all our fluids tend to be by bolus unless it's something like a vulture and it's really flat and, and we can have it on a, a drip for a long time so 10 mils initially and then we'll repeat that um two hours later so we'll give another 10 mils then and um depending how the bird is almost all parrots will be fed once or twice within the first 24 hour period that they're in so if we're feeding we'll normally start off by giving one percent of the bird's body weight as gavage feeding so that'll be five mils in the first meal and increasing to two two percent ten mil in the second meal so in that first day the bird will probably have somewhere between 15 and 20 mils of critical care diet by mouth, and that's going to be 85% fluid. So let's say it has 15 mils given to it, then about 12 mils is going to be fluid. So the bird needs 50 mils in day one. We've already given 10 mils of admission, 10 mils two hours later. It's going to get 12 mils in its food, so that little lot adds up to 32 mils, we require an additional 18 mils so we would give a further 10 mils on two other occasions within that 24-hour period and then in day two and day three obviously we're then giving more food we would then be giving three percent of body weight each time we feed and probably feeding three times a day so um, that would be uh, 15 mils at each feed uh, 45 mils in total let's say 40 mils of fluid and actually, by that stage, the bird only needs 37.5 mils of fluid each day. So we actually don't need to give any supplementary fluid at that point. In terms of what fluid do I give? I give uh, lactate ringers, 80%. And then I add to that 20% of dufolite. Dufolite is a um, essential amino acid vitamin um, intravenous supplement, uh, veterinary licensed product. Those, those are mixed together in a syringe. And then in, in the, the triage area, we have a human uh, baby milk bottle warmer, uh, which is uh, on all the time. And that is loaded um, with uh, syringes made up with fluid therapy 
all maintained in a sterile manner, obviously. Um, so there's no food warmed in there as well, so it doesn't get contaminated. So at any point in the day, we have body temperature, fluid therapy, ready mixed, ready to go, so there's no hold up or delay. What temperature is that fluid normally kept at? Well, we, we, we should be aiming at 41 degrees. Now, obviously, okay. for um, for human uh, milk, you're normally looking at 37. Uh, but, of course, the um, the warmer has a dial on the front that you can just turn oh, up a little bit. So, as I say, we're, we're aiming to, to be giving it at bird temperature. I think, again, a really important point that, obviously, intravenous fluid therapy is so much more effective but you must never 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 give cold intravenous fluid because there's no better way to shock a bird okay and can i ask what critical care uh diet you prefer Ab- um, abs- absolutely we we've used a whole range of different things over the years um and i'm not going to name all the ones that we've used and we've moved on from the one that we've used for the last i guess eight nine years is the lafiba emeraide range um, and the great thing about that for me is that it's a semi-elemental product so instead of the traditional uh, critical care diet which is ground down from a, a normal diet it's a semi-elemental that means it's nutritional building blocks the protein is a soy protein uh, high polyunsaturated fatty acids high vitamins and arginine um, and uh, fats for for energy production and the great thing about that is it's easy to absorb it's easy to assimilate it's easy to digest there's less energy used by the patient in making it available for the body to use Um, it comes as a dry powder Um, when you mix it the company tells us it'll go down a six french tube i've even often put it down a five french tube for a little tiny hundred gram tortoise or something of that type and in terms of the versions that are available there's an omnivore a carnivore um, a herbivore and a piscivore Um, and on the company website they will tell you exactly how to mix and match the different ones not only for different species, but for different life stages of different species. So, for example, a juvenile rat has a different mix to an adult rat, just the same as a juvenile uh, bearded dragon has a different mix to an adult bearded dragon. Um, And so the point is, by using that range of different critical care diets, you can give, say, specifically what we need. And I think it would be very foolish for anyone to say, oh, you can just use critical care product X, Uh, for all exotic patients, the same thing for everyone. Um, And for whatever product anyone is using, I would ask you to just check what is the energy density of your product in terms of herbivores? What is the fiber content of it? And does it come in a format that when it's mixed, you can get it down a tube so you can put it down a nasogastric tube, you can put it in a gavage needle, you can put it in a pharyngostomy tube. And for me, um, Emraid does all of those things. Uh, as I say, we've used it for eight years. That's all we use. Um, and we're very, very happy with it. Yes, I, I agree as well with Emraid. We always use that as well. And I think a lot of exotic vets use it. Thank you for that. I, I wanted to just segue and just ask about your actual thought process in terms of how you prioritize differentials. And then I probably would say that we may not touch too much on the treatment side because uh, I think there are so many different things that you could treat. And yeah. I guess most yeah. people could read that in a book. 
I, you know, I think going back to principles, common things commonly occur, um, getting that history so you know the background of the bird, so you're then starting to, to work out things in your own mind that are going to be more or less common. And thinking about it for ourselves overall, if we think about the main differentials, we've got environmental respiratory issues, um, such as the PTFE and uh, aerosols and all that sort of stuff, dust. Um We've got the parasitic aspect we need to think about. We've got bacterial infection. And I, I used to get hung up a lot when I was less experienced thinking, well, if I've got an aeroceculitis, I need to take a swab and grow and see what bit bacteria I've got there. Um, and and I perhaps do that a little bit less now. Um, so for me, bacteria, the main bacteria I'm thinking about is chlamydia. You know, it is defined as an obligate intracellular bacteria um, and then fungal infections. And, and there, of course, we are predominantly talking about aspergillus. So, you know, actually, it's not so, so complicated. Those are your basic differentials. You know that there are certain species that are much more susceptible to aspergillus than others. You know that aspergillus is a ubiquitous organism. It can happen anywhere. It doesn't have to be in a moldy or dirty place. And for sure, when a bird has been immune compromised due to stress, it is much more likely to get it. And of course, any bird is more likely to get a respiratory infection. Any parrot is more likely to get a respiratory infection if it's been fed long-term on a seed-based diet because we know that any, bird, any parrot on a seed-based diet will eventually become vitamin A and calcium deficient as long as it lives long enough for that, that to happen. So, you know, I, I, I don't sort of jump to one thing or another. Um, I, I will think because it's this species or it's been... Uh, its husbandry is is x some things may be a little bit more likely than others the the noises i hear when i'm visually examining the bird if there is a tracheal obstruction or the bird is trying to talk so that's one of the key ones is is obviously loss of change change of voice will be what i would refer to as site one aspergillosis in other words the syrinx um so it's not a question of the bird is too sick or dozy to want to speak but it's trying to speak and its voice has changed or there is obvious inspiratory or expiratory strider then i'm particularly thinking about either a tracheal foreign body or a syringeal aspergilloma. What about non-infectious diseases? If you've got a, a patient with ascites, you will tend to get a respiratory lift as of the main body as it's breathing. Not in every case. It's not going to be that, that obvious. But I think there are clues there that will tell you. Um, I would certainly never charge in with an endoscope unless I've got an x-ray first. And on x-ray, you're always going to see if you have ascites, you'll see that there. Organomegaly, um, you know, anything within the celiomic cavity that gets bigger, whether that be ascites, constipation, neoplasia, organomegaly, you know, all of that stuff is going to show up on your x-ray straight away. So for me, the, the diagnostic approach that I've described, in other words, anesthetized, IV catheter, pool bloods, hematology, biochemistry, chlamydia serology, lateral and DV x-ray, and follow up that with endoscopy if relevant, um, and tracheoscopy if relevant, and fecal examination if relevant. For me, that's that's what's going to give me my diagnosis. Yes, I may need to do cultural sensitivity from the trachea, the coena, or or from an air sac as well. The key thing is that whole process should be done on day one. I understand. Now, I want to take a, make a big segue um, and actually talk about your current project, 
um, with vultures. Mm. And I was actually, for those who are unaware, do you mind just giving us um, some context in terms of what this current vulture crisis that we're facing at the moment? Okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much for for raising the subject. It's one that's obviously close to my heart. Um, So vultures are the most threatened genera of birds globally. Um, They're having a really, really tough time. Many of you will have heard of the vulture crash in Asia uh, that was recognized some 15 years ago. Um, And that was all down to the use of diclofenac, non-steroidal drug, in both farm animals and in humans, where the carcasses of both farm animals and humans uh, were left out for vultures to eat and then vultures died of kidney failure. And so in Asia, they had a 98% population crash, 98% population crash over a 10-year period. Um, But the good news is there was predominantly one etiology. Um, The agent was able to be removed from the veterinary market and um, birds were taken into captive breeding projects and birds are now being released back to the wild. And... um, big organization called save save asian vultures from extinction um that was set up and, and managed by rspb and the zoological society of london and input from america as well and uh, they've done a fantastically good job and i have no doubt that in the fullness of time the asian population will get back to normal and that's brilliant my main concern is is more predominantly to do with the African situation. Uh, in Africa, we've also had a 98% reduction in population, but it's been over a much longer period. It's over 45, 50 years. So it's been going on for a long, long time, and it's a, a much more complicated situation. So out there, the etiology is um, poisoning, both um, accidental and uh, malicious. So accidental is basically subsistence farmers putting out poisons to control lion, jackal and hyena and managing to to, uh, poison vultures at the same time. And that's just bad practice. And, uh, you know, it it shouldn't uh, it shouldn't happen. But it's it's gone on for ages and actually is not a, a, a major problem, really. The malicious is much more serious. And this is twofold. Well, firstly, Elephant poachers, where when they kill an elephant, it'll take three, three and a half hours to take the tusks out, by which time any vultures in the area are circling above, telling the rangers that there's a carcass there and they ought to investigate it. And of course, the poachers are then more likely to get caught. So the poachers have learned from that and said, okay, I'll kill the vultures. That way, I'm less likely to get caught. So they will either poison a water source or poison a carcass. And a single poison carcass can kill anywhere between 50 and 600 vultures in one hit. Wow, that's crazy. So this has started in about 2000, and it's really taken off big time since then. So it's a massive problem. Now, if I explain that in Africa we have 11 species of vulture, seven of those species are either endangered or critically endangered. Two of them, that's white-headed vultures and hooded vultures, are predicted to be extinct in six to seven years' time. There are four species where there are less than 5,000 of each species left. That means they are rarer and in more danger than black rhinoceros. And yet we hear so much about black rhinoceros, uh, rightly so, but so little about vultures. And people say, oh, well, they're ugly and dirty. I think they're absolutely beautiful and they're clever and they're fantastic birds. But they are 
pivotal and really important for our ecosystem. They are nature's cleanup crew. 70% of all dead flesh on the Masai Mara is cleared up by vultures. And nature hates a vacuum. If, if suddenly that cleanup crew isn't there, then something else is going to take off. For example, in India, when they had the vulture die off, there was then a rebound, dramatic increase in feral dog population, which then suffered rabies, which then caused a pandemic rabies uh, uh, disease outbreak in children in Africa with 600,000 humans dying of rabies each year because the vultures weren't there. So it's just an indication that if we lose our vultures, we will have an increased disease within the biomune as, as a whole. That's a huge public health implication there. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Was, that, was that sorry? Was that in India or Africa that that, that actually that's, happened? That, that's in India where it happened. Okay. <clears throat> we we aren't. You know, it's not so obvious what will fill the space in Africa. So so going back to the problems in Africa, we have poisoning, which uh, is responsible for. Uh, say um, about 60% of cases, and then 34% is uh, caused by power cables, and that, that 34% is the figure given to me personally by ESCOM, the uh, electricity producing company. Uh, the company is in in great financial difficulty. It's a government-owned company which creates its own problems in terms of trying to get them to behave themselves. So this is either. Um, vultures standing on a pylon and touching a cable or standing on a cable and touching a pylon or flying into power cables. Um, now, the Bonn Agreement and the Bern Agreement, uh, internationally, globally recognized agreements, require uh, energy producers to mitigate against uh, conflicts between wildlife, in particular migrating birds, and power cable networks. Um, and, and there have been caught successful court cases against power generators in Europe. And, um, and I think in the fullness of time, inevitably, um, legal action will be taken against ESCOM because uh, whilst they are doing a certain amount to try and mitigate, they're not doing enough. Okay. So that's the power generation. And then lastly, we still have vultures being killed for black magic, what's referred to as muti. So um, local people, 80% um, of, of local people in Africa still go to a witch doctor instead of going to a Western trained doctor, uh, despite the fact it costs them more. Uh, and, and part of the witch doctor's uh, art is to use body parts of wildlife and humans on occasion um, to be consumed by uh, people that they're trying to treat. So yes, there are vultures that are literally clubbed to death so that parts of their body can be used in black magic. Okay. In terms of when you said poison, is there one particular poison? Or it, it's predominantly carbamate and organophosphates, uh, but there's a whole range. There is, there is no control on the availability of those products in Africa. You can buy any of them at any taxi rank you like, anywhere you like. Uh, there are many um, countries within Africa um, that where, where these chemicals are made and they're just freely uh, passed across boundaries and made available in other countries. So, yeah, it would be, it would be lovely if there was some legal control. Um, it would be lovely if uh, African people didn't want to go to a black magic doctor anymore. But these things are not going to change overnight. And I think where we're talking about uh, losing vultures, vultures going extinct in six to seven years' time, uh, you know, I have to be honest with you and say I cannot see enough change happening in Africa within that time period 
to prevent them going extinct. Okay, that's. I mean, that's huge. Um, yeah, really scary. On that note, can you talk to us about what efforts are being made? So. Efforts that are already being made, people like uh, BirdLife International um, are doing as much as they possibly can. There's lots of conservation organizations who are measuring vulture populations and saying, yes, they're going down. Well, you know, that's great, but it doesn't achieve a lot. Uh, there are people trying to work uh, with uh, ESCOM, for example, uh, the Endangered uh, Species Trust in Africa um, is trying to achieve that. They're trying to get mitigation put onto power cables. There are some wonderful conservation organizations out in Africa, people like Volpro. That, so how did I get involved? A client of mine uh, who had birds of prey was at that time the um, the the organizer for Volpro UK. Volpro UK was a money-raising organization, raising money to support the work of Volpro. Volpro in Africa, it's based in South Africa at, um, in the Magellisburg Mountains near Hotspeedsport Dam. And they the, the first thing they were always doing was running a rehabilitation facility. So they would take in injured vultures, do their best for them, get as many back to the wild as they could. The tragedy was that a lot of those birds were ending up with wings being amputated. So you've got birds with one wing amputated, even some birds with two wings amputated. Then the question is, what the heck do you do with those birds? And then in normal sense, it would say, well, put the bird down. But actually, when we're talking about white-backed vultures, which is one of the main species they have there, and cape vultures, again, both of those species, less than 5,000 left, um, we need that genetic material and there is the potential to use those birds for captive breeding uh, and also for education. So I was introduced to Valpro. I went out there. I gave some uh, training courses on rehabilitation, on first aid and emergency care for birds of prey. And um, in that first year when I went out and lectured, we had lectured in a January time. We were there for 15 days. And in that period, 23 injured vultures came into care in just that one organization. And one thing that I really found shocking was that uh, it's a white-backed vulture, so critically endangered species, uh, came into care. The uh, organizer phoned her veterinary service and said, I've got a white-backed vulture with a fractured humerus. I need to bring it in for surgery. And they were told, fine, come in three days' time. Now, from a welfare point of view, delaying surgery with a fractured humerus three days is not appropriate. From a conservation point of view, delaying it three days is certainly not appropriate. So then that sort of kicked off some ideas in my mind. And I got mm -hmm. together with um, a number of other people, um, loosely based around the International Bird Prey Center in Newant in, in the UK. Um, yes. And what we wanted to do was to bring a new skill set to bear on vulture conservation. So skills that had not been either used at all or, or fully used. So we, we've got a guy called Rick Hartness from America who is one of the world's leading experts on conflicts between wildlife and power generation. Uh, we have Jemima Parry-Jones and Holly Kale who uh, have tremendous expertise in captive breeding. Um, Adam Block, um, who is an a, a amazing techie guy. He's uh, created uh, intelligent eggs so we can actually uh, allow... Um, captive vultures to incubate them and they will record the temperature at different levels in the egg, exactly how many times they're turned, what the humidity is and, and, and all the rest of it. So learning a lot of information, <clears throat> really good information about how we can 
best um, artificially incubate these these chicks and so on. Um, and then myself, uh, from an avian orthopedic point of view, from a rehabilitation point of view, from rearing neonates, from managing incubation infection control and so on. Um, my wife, Karen, who has been a, a very experienced exotic animal nurse um, for 30 odd years. And so we've all got together and we formed this organization called Vulture Alliance, which is a, a charitable organization. And we're trying to bring to bear those those uh, those skills. So as I said, we've done training and the thing that I've that's really come home to me, which is uh, I feel so lucky to be to be involved with this is that, yes, I can, as I have, I can go to South Africa, I can be treating a course, and then people turn up and say, can I operate on this bird and that bird? And yeah, sure, I operate on them. And I've seen birds where every avian vet, including professors in universities, have said, it is impossible to fix this vulture. And I fixed it. And, you know, that's great, and that's rewarding, and it makes me feel good. Mm -hmm. But actually then taking that a step further, so apart from training rehabilitators, so rather than just admitting birds and giving them some fluids and some pain relief and doing what symptomatically seemed best, we then introduced lead poison, uh, testing for lead, because we know between 12 and 32% of vultures free-flying have got lead toxicosis from eating ammunition in carcasses testing ionized calcium level because we know that a lot of first-year fledging vultures fail to fledge and come into care because they're not eating enough bone chips. The bone chips are made by lions, jackal, and hyena, and if they've been poisoned, then the chips aren't made. The young birds, they may not have metabolic bone disease, but they're weak and incoordinated because they're uh, calcium deficient. So using ionized calcium testing to check for that, we're able to, con to control that. By getting white blood cell testing as birds are admitted, we find out have they got an infection? Do they need uh, antifungal or antibacterial medication? Um, so actually using a bit of science to try and work out A, what treatment they need, and then it also in time to try and develop prognostic, better prognostic tests to see who we really can get back to the wild and, and, and who we can't. So that's one thing we've done <coughs> in improving rehabilitation. But we've then taken that a stage further. We've then gone and trained. So uh, Jemima, Holly, Adam, myself have gone to South Africa and we trained people on captive breeding. And in the first year after we did that, the number of eggs laid and chicks hatched from the Valpro uh, breeding facility using injured wild birds went up by 100 percent. You know, that's a massive contribution. Um, was, so we, was it, sorry to interrupt. Was there any one thing that you changed or was it just a accumulation of just it, different things? It, that you... it, it's, it's everything, to be honest. Um, uh, I mean, there, there were some things we could change in terms of pulling some of the eggs. So we got, um, you know, if, if you... When an egg is laid, leave it with the parents generally for 10 days and then pull it. The first 10 days, if it's left with the parents, the hatchability uh, will be increased. But if you pull it at 10 days, then the female vulture will recycle after 30 days. So just to put this in context, in a normal wild situation, a vulture lays one egg a year and they will rear one chick every two years. They're not sexually mature generally until they're seven or eight years old. So this is part of the problem that not only we're losing lots of vultures, but actually their ability to repopulate their, themselves is very, very poor. So by us 
taking an egg in, in, into an incubator, getting the parent to recycle, that immediately doubles the number of eggs that that female is going to produce. Um, so that was one of the key points, managing disease, uh, helping with uh, rearing youngsters. Obviously, any any eggs which are hatched in an incubator have to go back with the parents or at least back into the colony to make sure that psychologically they grow up normal so that in future they will breed with vultures and realize they are a vulture and they're not an imprinted chick. So there are lots of things to get right about that. So that was one step. And then the other step we we uh, we did last January, not this January, last January, we then started teaching avian orthopedic surgery. So from my point of view, this fact that the veterinary facility to Volpro couldn't see this bird with a broken wing, a critically endangered bird for three days. I said, well, hang on, this is ridiculous. We need to make more avian experienced vets who can do orthopedic surgery. So instead of wings being chopped off, they get repaired. So in that first year, we went and we taught in uh, Cape Town, in Durban and in Pretoria. We taught uh, rehabilitation techniques to the vets in day one, and in day two, we did an orthopedic wet lab. So they all had a carcass. The, uh, the, we went through the day. Uh, we did eight different fracture repairs, so all the standard, starting with simple things, building up to really complex things. Each delegate had to do those in front of me, small groups, just six, a maximum of 16 people. And so that first year, we, we, we taught 48 vets to do high-quality avian orthopedic work that they could do themselves the next week and That's the feedback good. from that was absolutely fantastic straight away people were saying i've seen this bird i've seen that bird i never would have thought of treating it before i would have euthanized it and i fixed it and it's repaired and so on and and so you know not only you treat you teach 48 people but they teach their colleagues and the whole thing becomes a ripple on effect that went so, so well that we repeated it again this year. So I've literally just been back for uh, a week now from uh, the second teaching trip. And we've taught another 48 vets to do orthopedic surgery. We've had vets from Namibia, from Botswana, from Jordan. Um, so people coming from farther afield now uh, to take expertise back to their own countries. And some of those now wanting training in their own countries. Um, so we've done the 48 another vet, uh, further vets now. We also did two other day, additional days training, one on diagnostics, avian diagnostics, and the second day on endoscopy. And it's just amazing to say that this is the first time ever that avian endoscopy training has been provided in, in South Africa. Wow. Um, so to be able to take that, we were supported by Storts who brought the equipment. Uh, my travel costs and, and some of the other costs were supported by Wildlife Vets International. Um, and, and, you know, so we've we've got a lot of support that's allowing it this to become a sustainable long-term thing. We will now aim to take this. We've had invitations to go to Kenya, to Botswana, uh, to Jordan, uh, to take it to other countries. Uh, and the whole, you know, it's a bit like, you can feed a family or give them a fishing net and teach them to fish and feed the whole village for the next 50 years. That's really what we're trying to do, but using veterinary training to achieve it. You know, I can treat one or two birds, but by now creating 100 vets in South Africa to do it, and I continue to give them remote assistance. They'll send me x-rays or, uh, you know, send me emails and ask me, how do I do X, Y, or Z? How should I approach this fracture? And I can give them that information from the UK. So it, I feel very, very lucky that I have experience and skills that are appreciated and can be used in remote parts of the world where they are desperately, desperately needed to help us 
try and delay or turn around what may be seemed as an inevitability that we will lose some of Africa's vulture species. Okay. And just quickly, these vets that are being trained, are they just local vets who have just heard of Vulture Alliance and have shown an interest in avian medicine? Or are they, you know, members of Vulture Alliance and they're actively in the wildlife sort of... <laughs> Um, it, it, some, some of each, some of each. Uh, and I have to say, it is wonderful to see some of the vets that we taught last year now taking a really key and pivotal role in wildlife rehabilitation in a number of different setups um, in, in South Africa. Um, the first leg prosthesis to be put on a vulture, which actually was in Europe, was in this last year, was carried out um, by someone that we trained the previous January. Uh, we have the, the, the key, the lead clinician at SANCOB, which is the South African uh, seabird rescue organization in Cape Town, is one of our trainees. Uh, just three weeks ago, there was a devastating situation in, uh, 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 in the Durban area uh, where a migrating colony of red-footed uh, some more falcons uh, on their way back to India were caught in a hailstorm and they admitted 1,070 and more falcons into rehabilitation um, wow. and, and that whole project you know amazing amount of work and effort went into that to get as many of those birds back into the wild as possible and again that was managed by one of our trainees so yeah there are those people there are other people who are just cat and dog vets who just have an interest and we have had say other vets coming from other countries we both years we've had uh, two delegates coming to train with us from austria um, that have gone back and and then working within the university and in practice in austria as well so as i say it is a ripple effect um you know it, it has to start from one point but we we hope over the you know maybe the next 10 years that we really have an ability to improve the quality of veterinary care provided to injured wild birds across the world. Uh, one of my next projects is, obviously, we've taught people how to do all of these. What I now want to do is to actually create videos on YouTube that will be public, publicly available, free of charge to anyone who wants to use them, of each individual technique, with with everything from x-rays before the whole process and post-op x-rays. Yes, it'll take a bit of time to create, and I've, hopefully I've got a man with a video camera who will do the filming for me and so on. But actually getting that stuff out there for anyone in the world to use for the sake of wildlife, I think is... You know, it's a great thing to be doing, and for me, a fantastic legacy. Yeah, I think that's that's fantastic. I mean, there are so many vets or people that are involved in conservation that just don't have access to these sort of resources. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, and I think, um, could I ask for people who are who are vets that are maybe listening who are from Africa, um, how can they, if they are interested in learning or interested in getting involved? Do you know where they could go to find out more information? Okay. I mean, probably the easiest thing, certainly in, in terms of looking at, at the vulture, most people in Africa will know about this, but, but looking at where we are with the vultures, if you can go to our website, which is vulturealliance.org. Uh, there's a whole lot of stuff on there, and you can contact us through that website. You can contact me directly on my email, which is neil, N-E-I-L, dot F-O-R-B-E-S, 
2011 at yahoo.co.uk. We're very happy to give any support or help to anyone we can. We'd love to hear from anyone who wants training in any part of the world. It doesn't have to be Africa. Um, I'm not saying we can do it overnight. If you're just one vet by yourself in one place, we may invite you to come to somewhere else where we're running a course. Um, uh, we can do all of that. If you're in South Africa, if you contact Dorian Elliott at the uh, Exotic Animal Clinic at Honest Support University, she will always know what's going on as well. And down in Cape Town, Wilhelmine uh, Van Wyck, um, she, she uh, has been fantastic at organizing and uh, taking bookings and organizing facilities. And I have to say, I couldn't go and do this training without people in the host countries who are prepared to uh, advertise uh, when we're running these courses, take bookings and uh, organize venues and uh, veterinary instrumentation in the UK who loan me equipment to take out there. You know, the, there are so many people that I couldn't do it without their input. But you know what? Collectively, we can achieve a tremendous amount. I was about to say that this is a huge collaborative effort. Um, yeah. You don't really, yeah, and I didn't, I didn't realize how big it was and how many people were actually involved in yeah, um, doing yeah. this, um, I think it sounds like you haven't really retired at all from when you <laughs> left Great Western Exotic Vets, and yeah. <laughs> you're probably busier yeah. than you were before. <laughs> well, I think you know, I, I, I've I've left commercial referral practice uh, earlier than most people would retire. That's certainly true, um, but it was partly a question of you know I wanted still to have the health and the energy to to be able to do some good, and. Um, you know, I think a lot of people just carry on working at the coalface way too late and uh, run themselves into bad health and so on. So, um, by by moving away, um, I've I've been able to uh, spend time and effort with the vultures, and uh, as I say, hopefully, long term, that will be a lot more useful for the population and um, something that I can feel um, proud about. No, I, th I think that's great, um, and I think a lot of vets need to think about this when they're, you know, in terms of what they want to do, um, and you sure. know, what sort of sure. legacy they want to leave. And I think right now, we, you know, we're a, we're a, a generation of vets. Um, I'm just coming up for sixty now, and a lot of vets of my age have been very fortunate in being able to sell practices and so on, and and therefore are financially secure. And I think rather than just walking away and taking up sailing or scuba diving or whatever i think i would urge all all vets in in my sort of situation you know all of us have skills and knowledge and expertise that could be very usefully shared with people in developing countries uh, and i and i think you know this this really would be a really good thing to do. and and in this country as well but there's a lot of goodness we can do rather than just sitting on a backside drinking pink gin yes fair enough um, now, I just had a few questions. There's sort of questions that I like to ask every vet um, just to sum things up. Um, sure. And I know there's, some of these are a little bit broad. Um, but in terms of exotic medicine, in terms of I guess, wildlife conservation as well, where do you think it's all heading? I, I think nowadays? the biggest step, I mean, I, I've spent 35-odd years going into universities, teaching undergraduates, trying to get uh, basically companion animal vets better at treating birds. And, yeah, we've achieved a certain amount. But to say the amount of effort that's been put on, being put in, we haven't achieved enough. And I think, you know, if I look back when I first graduated, there were lots of mixed practitioners. Uh, and obviously, over a period of time, there are now small animal vets, there are farm vets, there are horse vets and poultry vets and all various other little bits and pieces, too. But those three main groups, if you look at America, 
you also have a fourth group, which is exotic animal vets. And my emphasis over the last five or 10 years has changed from trying to teach undergraduates to do more. It has changed to trying to encourage the public to use exotic animal vets. Um, you know, that it's a discipline that still is very poorly taught at university. Uh, and if they want good quality care for their patients, they should be going to a exotic animal vet. And the more people who are doing that, then the better career path there is for exotic animal vets. Uh, and that will be better for everyone long term. So I think in terms of where is the 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 uh, profession, the exotic animal discipline going in certainly in Europe and in the UK, to my mind, the emphasis must be on um, creating and recognize, getting the public to recognize exotic animal vets as a totally separate discipline. So I think that's the, the most important thing I would uh, suggest. One exception in terms of companion animal vets, I'm really pleased um, that um, the ECC mo movement, the emergency critical care movement amongst companion animal vets has embraced exotic animal medicine because they appreciate that exotic animal medicine is per-acute. And as ECC vets working at nights and weekends and, and so forth, they are presented with exotics. So the BSAVA certificate in ECC now includes a module in exotic animal care. And uh, out of ours, uh, veterinary providers like Vets Now, um, when they're training new uh, people to work in their out-of-hours clinics, include uh, a course on exotic animal medicine. And I think that's really, really positive. And I think that's the, the one exception. Um, and in terms of um, for vets that do want to learn more about ex exotic medicine, can I ask what book would you recommend most Sure, for vets to sure. read. There's so many great books out there. There's lots of lovely books on conservation, but I think we probably have to stick to a veterinary book. And if you're someone who's serious about avian medicine, I would probably at the moment suggest uh, Brian Spears' book, Current Therapy in Avian Medicine Surgery. Lots and lots of detail. And I can remember back when um, Richie and Harrison produced their book when I was starting out. And uh, you know, I read that book from cover to cover and learned so much from it. So a book of that type, you know, a real Bible, um, it still gives you very little on each individual condition because there are, you know, nine, well, 12,000 species and, um, you know, so many different diseases that go on and so on. But I think that would be the great one. If you're a sort of small animal vet wanting to do a little bits and pieces, then I would recommend uh, Lance Jepson, Exotic Animal Medicine, which is a lovely, simple, straightforward, these are the signs you're presented with. With, these are your differentials and this is how to get there edition two for lance jepson's book but a, a really useful book that one okay great just in terms of advice because i know that you are certainly have been a mentor for many uh, vets out there um, and a, a leader in the profession but if you could actually travel back in time and give yourself one piece of advice or information or a tip or something for yourself when you were first starting out mm. what would it be and why it's it's a really tough question, and and I have to be honest about it. And you know the difficulty is vets. Most of us are AA people. We we really want to achieve and progress and be recognised. And you get the opportunity to lecture and all this sort of stuff, and and that's fantastic. And and I wouldn't have achieved what I have achieved without doing all of that stuff. But at the same time, I think you know nowadays we are recognising more and more the um, the effects of that sort of lifestyle on family and um, social life and on mental health and all that sort of stuff. So I think, you know, 
if I had to give myself advice, I would have to be honest and look myself in the eye and say, I should have had a better work-life balance. Okay, I wouldn't have achieved what I've achieved. And in all honesty, it was only when I took my foot off the accelerator and leaving Great Western Exotics that I, being honest, I realized just how ridiculous it was the work rate that I had done for many, many years, working way too many hours, and even when not at work, then writing lectures to go off and give and, and so on. So getting the balance right and looking after yourself and your family and uh, your your relationships with other people, I think is something which an awful lot of top achieving vets do very, very badly. Oh, I can... I can to think of many people that have <laughs> terrible work-life balance <laughs> too many too many divorces behind them and all that sort of stuff yeah and it's not good and the kids lose out and all the rest of it so i think you know being honest that that would have to be the main piece of advice okay and just one last question if you could send one text to every vet in the world what would it be uh. gosh well i think um you know, we're, we're living in an age of corporatization of veterinary practice, and I think a lot of us old-fashioned vets um, are, are sorry to see the past go, um, a time when people concentrated on giving really good care to their patients, to their owners, uh, and so on. And I think my my one text would be to encourage all vets to look after equally well their patients, their owners, themselves, and their families, uh, and try and give really good care, but at the same time to try and balance that with um, home life and, and so forth. Um, but also not only their patients, but also wildlife. Wildlife conservation and the, the world in which we live, you know, Blue Planet and, and all the rest of it, you know, we, we are trying to destroy our, our planet that we live in and we as vets, you know, we're kind of in the front line and people do listen to us. So sharing our concerns with everyone else is really important. So just keeping your eyes open and trying to support everyone, but in, in particular, including uh, all animals in the world and uh, the uh, environment in which we all live. Okay. On that note, thank you very much um, for this talk today, Neil. Um, I really appreciate it. I know that you're such a busy person and you have so many people that uh, request your time. So I just wanted to say that um, I really appreciate uh, you being able to talk with me this morning. That's a pleasure, Simon. It's been great fun. And if we can spread some of the, uh, the good ideas and good work, that will be a good job done. Hi guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I just have a few things to say. Firstly, if you have any feedback for the podcast or any recommendations on how we can improve it, or if you know any potential guest speakers you think would be great on the podcast, please post a comment on iTunes or Stitcher or go to our website at inquisivet.com. That's I-N-Q-U-I-S-I-V-E-T.com. I also need to quickly go through our disclaimer with you. So the Inquisivet podcast is brought to you by Barvets Proprietary Limited. Our podcast publication is for general information purposes only and do not take into account your specific needs, objectives or circumstances. Content is based on the professional opinions of individual doctors and other healthcare professionals who have contributed their content. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests or contributors and are not necessarily those of Barvets. Barvets is not responsible for errors or for opinions expressed in this podcast. 
By listening and downloading our podcast, you agree not to use our content as medical device to treat any medical condition in animals, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Barvets expressly disclaim any warranties or guarantees expressed or implied and shall not be liable for damages of any kind in connection with the material, information, techniques or procedures set forth in this podcast. This disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Thank you for listening and we'll see you later. Bye.